Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. The second reading is Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 to 18. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you're praying, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disgive disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your hand, head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When Liz and I were undergraduates at Sheffield University back in the early 90s, surely not, I hear you say, the Biblical Studies Department where we were studying was situated on floor 10 of what was then known as the Arts Tower. If you know Sheffield, it, it no longer has students in it, it's now an administrative building, but back then it did. And this uh, grade two listed 1960s skyscraper dominates the skyline of Sheffield. And it is kind of loved and loathed in equal measure, in a similar way that perhaps, you know, the Barbican Centre divides opinion in London. I've always felt I'd like to live in the Barbican because it strikes me that that's the one place you can't see the Barbican from. Um, the Arts Tower is, is steel and glass rather than brutalist concrete. 
Anyway, there were a couple of normal lifts that, that operated up and down the middle of the building, but they were far inadequate for the numbers of students that needed to move around this building. So uh, the main way of getting around it was to use a thing called a paternoster lift. I, I, I may have mentioned this before. Um, have you ever seen or been in one of these things? It's like a kind of bicycle chain of carriages, uh, each one big enough for two people only. And it runs from the bottom to the top of the building and then goes over the top and comes all the way back down the other side. And if you miss one car, there'll be another one along in about 10 seconds in a constant sort of rather slow circular motion. The carriages of this lift have no doors. Uh, you simply wait for a vacant car to kind of ascend or descend before you and you step on and then it carries you up or down to the floor that you want. It's brilliant and terrifying at the same time. Uh, thoughts of getting your foot stuck as it kind of but they've got little flippy floors to make it safe but as you step on into the void knowing that this thing will rise to meet you or will it from the 10th floor of a skyscraper or higher it's not impossible that you might mutter a little prayer to yourself hence so the rumor goes these are known as paternoster lifts because for those of you whose Latin is a little rusty, Paternoster is Latin for our Father, the opening words of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew's Gospel. Now, of course, it may be that the circular motion of the carriages is also reminiscent of counting the beads on a rosary, which could also give rise to this name. I think I prefer the nervous little prayer explanation. And I wonder if the Paternoster lift can tell us something significant about the way people often use the Lord's Prayer. I suspect that for many, maybe even for some of us, it's a little rote prayer learned in childhood and recited when needed. Either because it's that point in the service again and it's time for us to say it on a Sunday morning, or because, if you're from a, a, maybe a, a Roman Catholic tradition, you've got to that point in the rosary again. Or because some other pressing need for prayer has triggered it and you think, I need to pray, what shall I pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We all, I say we all, people of my generation and above, I think, know it well. I'm showing my age again, aren't I? For many people, particularly perhaps those who've had a Roman Catholic upbringing, just saying paternoster is enough. The opening words infer the rest of the prayer. And I think this tells us something profound about the nature of the Lord's Prayer, which is the way it begins is of utmost importance. If the Lord's Prayer is the definitive Christian prayer, I'm going to suggest that the opening words are the most definitive phrase within it. They define what follows, our Father. And this practice of using the opening couple of words to signify what follows is far from unique in just the Lord's Prayer. The Jews did it, for example, with the prayer known as the Shema, which we had read to us earlier from the book of Deuteronomy and with which I began this sermon. In many ways, the Shema is a kind of forerunner to the Lord's Prayer, and it similarly gets its name from the opening words. Shema means hear, and indeed the prayer begins, hear, O Israel. How things begin 
particularly in prayer, is important. And the Lord's Prayer begins in Matthew's Gospel with our Father. We're going to look at this in a moment. I'm just going to take a moment for a PA-related question, Fifi. I think I'm ringing slightly. Can you take volume down on the white microphone? Because uh, I'll project quite loudly and then that will be fine. That's better, thank you. I could just hear it ringing in the background. So, it begins our Father. And interestingly, in Luke's Gospel, it begins just father and I, I want us to focus on this word father for a few minutes this morning you see the language we use to describe God the language we use to name God to talk about God to address God reveals a lot about who we think God is the Lord's Prayer for example could have begun just our God in a fairly neutral statement. It could have begun in the way that we use the modern paraphrase of it here on a Sunday morning, loving God. Could have begun our king, which suggests a kind of authoritarian authority. Actually, our king, rather than our father, would have made a lot of sense, given that at least part of what follows shortly is a prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So it might have made sense for Jesus to begin by naming the kingship of God. But no, the Lord's Prayer begins by turning to God as the heavenly father, the divine parent of those being invited to offer this prayer. And the Jews, of course, had a tradition of praying to God as father. And although it's not frequently found in the Old Testament, it certainly formed part of the devotional tradition of Judaism within which Jesus grew up. And the most common images for God that we find in the Hebrew Bible tend to revolve around God as creator or king or judge. Father is in there, but it, but it isn't common. And it may well be that, that this lack of the fatherhood, the parenthood aspect of God in the Hebrew Bible was a reaction against other religious traditions that existed in the ancient world, which believed in the notion of the divine parenthood of humans through the mechanism of putting it bluntly, God's having sex with humans. So if you explore the religious traditions of the ancient world, there are all sorts of traditions out there in you know Babylonian and Assyrian and, and, and other other religious traditions that, that the gods come to earth and impregnate human women and you get superhero type offspring actually you do get an echo of this those of you who know the early chapters of Genesis in the Genesis story of the Nephilim where angels come down and have children with, uh, with the, the daughters of humans and their offspring, we're told, are the heroes of old. And so as, as, the, as the Hebrew Bible tradition develops, as the Old Testament comes into being, there seems to be a bit of a move away from this idea that God is father, is parent, because they may be wanting to distance themselves from these traditions uh, that, that are out there. Um, but nonetheless, Israel does still have an understanding of God as Father, even though it's not a dominant one. And when we come to understanding this, there are a couple of key aspects to drill into. Firstly, Israel, the nation, considered itself as a child adopted by God. 
particularly so with regards to God's decisive action in bringing them from slavery in Egypt. So Israel is God's child. God is Israel's adopted father. So an example, Exodus chapter 4. Moses tells Pharaoh, um, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me. So there you've got Israel personified as a male child. And this idea of Israel as God's child can be found elsewhere in the Old Testament too. You get it in Hosea and Isaiah and the Psalms. So Israel is God's son. That's, that's the first aspect of this. And therefore, God is Israel's father. The second way in which father imagery is used of God within the Jewish tradition, particularly in prayer, is the way that God is spoken of as being the father of the king of Israel. So, for example, in uh, the second book of Samuel, God promises to be a father to the king and that the king will be God's special son. And the combination of these two facets of the fatherhood of God, firstly as the covenantal father who rescues Israel from Egypt and adopts them, and secondly of God as the father of the king of Israel, these feed directly into the way Jesus would have understood the phrase, our father, when it is used of God. God is the father of Israel collectively, but also specifically, God is the father of its key figurehead, the king of the line of David. So here in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus referred to several times through the gospel as the son of David. And there's a sense here in which Jesus is being cast as the key figurehead of the new Christian community. It's not merely David who is his ancestor, but God who is his father. And this idea of Jesus as the son of God becomes important for Matthew's uh, community because it defines then those who gather around Jesus as being those who see themselves also as children of God. So not just for the disciples, but for the people for whom Matthew's gospel is written, if Jesus is the child of God, then those around Jesus are also God's children, and therefore God is not merely the father of Jesus, but God is our father. In Matthew chapter 12, we find Matthew recording Jesus as teaching, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The point is clear, those who follow Jesus in obeying the heavenly father become like him, children of God. We are created to be the family of God through our mutual obedience to God, our parents. And just as God was father of the king and also of all Israel, so God is the father of Jesus and also of all his disciples too. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, where we find the Lord's Prayer, we also find Jesus teaching his disciples several times that God is their father in heaven. 
It's not just here in the Lord's Prayer. It's throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And this sense that they have been adopted as children of God, as Israel of old was adopted as a son of God, is seen to carry with it a responsibility to live accordingly. The children are expected to behave in ways that bring honour to their heavenly father, for example, by doing good deeds. Just a word on this image of being adopted as a, as a son of God, adopted as a, as a child of God, adopted as a daughter of God. Um, some of you will know, uh, there's no secrets to this, that I am half adopted. My dad, who I have known all of my life, is not my biological father. He brought me up as his son. And, you know, he went through a, a slightly strange phase when I was in my teens. I'm pretty sure it was him and not me. But we have, we have a very good relationship. And I am forever grateful to him for adopting me as his son. So, for me, this language of adoption is a deep and profound image for the way I see my relationship with God. This is a meaningful sense of parenthood that gets right to the heart of my spirituality and my belonging. And it may be that this has echoes for some of you too. Of course, as an adopted son, I do try where I can in my own way to live in ways that honour the commitment that my dad made to me. And I think there's something of the background here of Israel as God's adopted child, bringing with it a sense of responsibility, of right behaviour, of honouring the commitment that has been made that Jesus is wanting to draw out. Um, and of course, this is in contrast with the Pharisees who are presented in the Gospel of Matthew as having in some sense betrayed their status as the children of God. They had started focusing on outward piety rather than on genuine transformation of the heart. They had taken their status as God's children for granted. So to say our Father at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is to take a momentous step of faith. It's not merely naming God as Father in some generic sense. Rather, it is specifically identifying the person praying the prayer as God's child. And if we pray this together, we are in effect naming ourselves as the new Israel, grafted into Israel of old, adopted by the God who brings us two from slavery to freedom. Israel's story becomes our story. We become those whom God has released from our enslavements to those desires and temptations that diminish the image of our Father in us. And this has implications for the way we must live. We must be those in whose lives good deeds are visible those who imitate the likeness of our Heavenly Father. I was having a, an interview with somebody um, this last week. They're doing a, a degree uh, down at King's College London, looking at community organising. 
uh, which is, as many of you know, Bloomsbury is very involved in community organising. Uh, it, it's a really great way of bringing transformation and change to issues of injustice in our city. And the person interviewing me said um, that one of the critiques of organising is that it, it lacks inclusivity, not in terms of um, things like uh, gender or, or sexuality or ethnicity, but it's dominated by people from religious traditions and not very inclusive of people who are not part of religious traditions. Why did I think that was? Well, firstly, I unpicked it slightly and I said, well, of course, it does involve people who are not part of religious traditions. We have schools and universities and community groups in membership. There's no faith requirement there. But then I thought, actually, do you know, if you get a self-selecting group of people like we are here this morning, who own and articulate regularly amongst themselves a core value of loving their neighbour because God has first loved them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and adds Jesus, love your neighbour as yourself. Is it then any surprise that an organisation that enables people to take love of neighbour and turn it into practical works of justice in the world tends to attract that kind of religious person? Saying that we are the children of God has to go somewhere, to take us somewhere. We are those in whose lives the good deeds are made visible because we are created and adopted into the likeness of God who is love. As Jesus rather uncompromisingly puts it in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we should never pray our Father lightly. But there's another side to being adopted as a child of God, and this is that we are the beneficiaries of the fatherly care of God. Not in the sense that God will automatically give his children everything they ask for. What kind of good father does that? That is the father who spoils the child. But rather in the sense that God is attentive to our needs, knowing what we need before we even ask it. And in many ways, I think this is a freeing insight for the person who wants to come before their heavenly father in prayer. I don't know about you, but I have grown weary of the kind of prayer that seeks to articulate all my needs and desires to God. When I was a teenager, I was encouraged to keep a prayer list and cross things off it when they were answered. Honestly, it was one of the worst things I ever did for my prayer life because it reduced my prayer to functional activity as if my naming of things according to some spiritual formula. Dear Lord, please do X and Y in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray, Amen. As if that formula could affect the outcome. So I will say this as bluntly as I know how. I don't think prayer changes God or God's mind or God's activity in the world. In fact, I'll go a bit further. I have a suspicion that to utter a prayer list 
according to some set incantation such as in the name of Jesus Christ amen which we think means that that will make God answer it is closer to what the Old Testament describes as sorcery than what Jesus talks of as prayer and I am deeply concerned when humans think they can control God by invoking prayer rituals or practices I want prayer to be so much more than presenting God with a shopping list of my needs. And I don't want us to live with the guilt that comes when we miss something off of our prayer list. If God is God, as God surely is, God knows already what we, God's children, want to say. Matthew chapter 6 verses 7 to 8. When you are praying, do not heap up empty praises such as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. God knows our needs before we do. And so, my friends, prayer can become for us something very different than just telling God our needs in the hope that he's listening and will give us what we ask for. Prayer to God our Father is prayer offered to the one who already knows us better than we know ourselves and who loves us more than we love ourselves. Such prayer is not about changing God or changing the outworking of God's love to the world. It is about bringing ourselves into alignment with the love of God, which is reaching out to us and through us and with us and within us to draw the world to God. And as Jesus himself discovered in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayer does not stop the difficult stuff happening to us or to those we love. Contemplating the horrors of the cross that lay before him, Matthew tells us that Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. The prayer in the garden did not avert the cross, but it did allow Jesus to embrace it. And this is what it means for us to pray to our God, our Father. The future is still before us with all of the joys and sorrows that it holds. But in prayer to our loving Father, we are drawn into the all-embracing love of God. And it is we who are changed by this prayerful encounter. It is we who are called to set aside our selfishness and our fear and all the pretensions that mask the image of God in our lives. He is our Father and he welcomes us into his presence as we draw near to him in prayer. And I know the point I'm about to make has been made many times before, and I'll make it again. For some of us, the image of God is deeply problematic. Human fathers, even at their very best, 
will only ever be poor reflections of God our Heavenly Father. And at their worst, they can be terrible perversions of what godly paternal love should look like. Some of us here today will have suffered violence and abuse from fathers who should have been different. Some of us will have suffered the absence of a father through our formative years. So I'm just going to say, if Father God doesn't work for you, that's fine. It's only an image. It's just language. All language of God is inadequate anyway. So feel free to substitute. If mother works better for you, go with that. Or maybe idealized parent. Whatever language captures for you the experience of being loved unconditionally by one who longs for your presence, that's fine. In many of our hymns here at Bloomsbury where it can be done without doing damage to the rest of the verse, we find ways of broadening the language we use to describe God beyond the normalization of Father. And that's fine too, because there are many ways to speak of God. And if we're going to hallow the name of God, we probably ought to use a name that is worth hallowing. But for now, for today, for this sermon, I'm going to stay with the language of God as Father. It's there in the text and it carries helpful meaning for many, if not for all. So pray this way, says Jesus, our Father in heaven. And here we sit straight up against another preconception of God that can be less than helpful. If God is our Father in heaven, does this mean that the one we are praying to is some kind of absentee God, sitting up there, metaphorically speaking, on a cloud, attending to human affairs from afar, attended on by putty and cherubs? Certainly, if the medieval artwork of God on high is to be believed, that is exactly what our Father which art in heaven looks like. However, we have to recognise that what is at play here is a pre-scientific cosmology that might have worked 2,000 years ago, but doesn't really work so well for us today. In the ancient Jewish spiritual tradition, they pictured the heavens as a kind of reflection of an earthly royal court. So just as a king on earth had courtiers and attendants and sat on a raised throne that indicated his power and authority, so they saw God sitting on his throne in heaven, surrounded by a heavenly court of attendants and armies. And in the ancient world, heaven was very definitely up there somewhere, high above the clouds. We still use that language, don't we? You know, we look up at night into the starry heavens above. Sometimes they thought in the ancient world that, that the veil between the heavens and the earth could wear a bit thin in places, particularly if you went up a mountain. It's one of the reasons people in the Bible often seem to go up to the tops of mountains to pray, to meet with God. They were, they believed, quite literally moving closer to God as they went up to the high places. And I'm pretty sure that none of us think that going up a mountain takes you literally closer to God. 
Figuratively speaking, maybe. I mean, you know, like many of us, I do get that sense of transcendence that a magnificent view can offer. But I don't think it's true literally. I don't think I'm closer to God in an aeroplane than I am when I'm at church at ground level. Although turbulence may increase the fervour of my praying in an aeroplane, but that's another thing. I think we need to intentionally set aside the view of our Father in heaven as describing a distant God, enthroned above the clouds, removed from our lives and our experiences of this world. I think a more helpful way of thinking of God as our Heavenly Father is to embrace this language as speaking to us of a God whose nature is to embrace all of the created order. He is the God of the heavens and the earth, the God of nature, the God of all peoples, the God of all animals, the God of all plants, all rocks, all trees, all mountains. Our Father in heaven is a vision of a holistic God whose love and care extends to the vastness of all that is. And so to think of ourselves as children of this God is to name ourselves as those who are called to share with God in the task of exercising universal love for all people and all creation. Because if we are God's children and God has adopted us, then our task is God's task. Rowan Williams has said that very near the heart of Christian prayer is getting over the idea that God is somewhere a very, very long way off. So that we have to shout very loudly to be heard. To put it another way, God is not like Tinkerbell. You know Tinkerbell? If you don't clap loudly enough, Tinkerbell disappears. That is not God. Praying to God our Father in heaven is not praying to the sky, hoping that the distant God will hear and respond. There is a profound paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer developed by the African Fellowship of Union Church in Istanbul that I think captures this sense of the heavenly God who desires to be available to all people everywhere who call upon his name. I discovered it in a book on the Lord's Prayer by Njay Gupta, which I found very helpful in the preparation of this sermon. And so I'm going to close with this paraphrase. Our Father who art in heaven, you are in Istanbul, in Kabul, in our flats, our hotels. You are within us and in our homes. You are in Africa and Europe and Australia and the Americas. In Yugoslavia and Russia, you are with the hungry and dying children in Somalia and South Sudan. Also in Liberia, Bosnia, Ethiopia, Janin and Jerusalem, Sri Lanka, Kuwait and Iraq. Amen. <laughs>
Thank you, Simon, for that sermon. Um, now we will have a panel discussion. So some people will be joining us online as well. So I guess it's worth, um, oh, step forward. Yeah, um, just going round and asking um, what you thought, what your feelings were about the sermon. Uh, well, I mean, personally, this the sermon is very significant for me because I've been struggling lately for a while with this, the whole notion of prayer. Um, the tradition I come from is was very much on the line of this uh, prayer shopping list kind of thing, uh, uh, and so. I was kind of trying to think how to how to well, I mean how to think about prayer and how to pray in new ways that avoid that kind of uh, notion. And so th this new idea of, of seeing prayer as a way of realigning ourselves and our lives with the love of God uh, to bring that to our day-to-day -day kind of activities. That's I think it's a very powerful no, uh, idea for me at least. Um, there are also some, a couple of points there, more particularly, that I found very interesting. I really like um, the fact that it was kind of explicitly acknowledged that sometimes the terms that, even those terms that we've inherited from the biblical tradition to talk about God, might be inadequate for some of us, depending on the circumstances. Uh, I think it's important to note that terms are very contextual. It really depends on the meaning that they have at some point and so they might very easily become inadequate or not really speak truly what we feel about god in our present time and it's very nice when you go to the bible because you actually see that the authors are doing this while they're writing there are terms that go obsolete and then new ways of speaking of god arise through the bible so i think it's that's very important i think um an essential part of the of the Christian journey is a constant reimagining of what God is and how we relate to this God. And so I think a, a, an important part of it could be using new terms and new ways of describing how we feel about God. Um, so yeah, and, uh, and I guess another point is I also felt uh, personally compelled with this way of interpreting God in heaven uh, as the God of, of everything. I have a I always interpret that phrase in a very personal way. Um, so b back in Spain, my, some of my grandparents live in, in a village very close to a mountain and very far from any city that could be polluting the sky. And so I've always enjoyed going there, apart from seeing my grandparents, of course, uh, but also to see the, the sky at night and you see in kind of the plenitude and the stars and you're getting that feeling of, of the vastness and, and all-encompassing and it, it makes you feel small but at the same time it makes you feel like you belong to something much greater uh, and something that you are connected to and so attaching that image to God to a God that is there for every single one of us no matter our circumstances or where we are or how we are I think that's also a, a very powerful image so that's my basic reflection on the sun. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Solomon? Yes, thank you. Yes, profound um, significance in this is how um, Father is interpreted. Um, it it makes me feel um, a sense. Uh, when I 
describe the world further and then it's just vast and then the way it is presented like a father is somebody that is protecting you this supplying all your needs um that somebody you can count on somebody that you don't have to ask but you know he's always there and that stood out for me powerfully and in the absence of that and in a worldly context, um, so many people uh, nowadays um, cannot count on somebody that is a biological father or somebody that, is, that they can count on. Even the government that we will think sometimes will be able to think for us, to supply our needs, to protect us. Um, we see the absence of that fatherly care or, or that or a protector or that supplier so the match between the two is just significant for me and um, what it described as a father in whether in uh, in a latin term or, or or in the hebrew term but i think that paternalistic personality that is able to 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 protect you to supply all your needs to be to stand up for you you know it, it, it it's just it's just profound Thank you. And Jeff? Yeah. John Henson paraphrases that first line of the Lord's Prayer as loving God here and everywhere, which actually tends to match more to the one that um, Simon finished with. But this is a switch. Was Jesus' use of father intended to convey a family relationship? Sorry, Jeff, it's slightly muffled. Could, um, could we? Maybe increase the volume slightly? Uh, probably. Okay, try now. Uh, hang on. <laughs> Takes more time than that to get at the microphone controls. Okay. Um, and maybe come closer to the microphone and, and, and try and um, speak slightly closer to the mic. Uh, yeah, I'll probably do that. Okay, me. Go back to where it was. Uh, right. Yeah. So we've got, was Jesus's use of father intended to convey a family relationship? Or is it intended to convey the attributes of the relationship by comparison? People draw parallels between the flow of electricity with the flow of water. So you see central heating diagrams with radiators represented as resistors. Trying to describe our relationship with God or even our understanding of God by using aspects that we can know or think we know is fraught with the risk of using the parallel as a definition. A Catholic at work asked me, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? I replied that I could not even comprehend the question. Some Christians would have gone to that other similar parallel of adoption. There's this guy, Roger Huey, quite famous in computing areas, died this year. When he joined Dialogue, who's been my employer since 1977, we were at a conference banquet and he described himself as a Christian atheist. I reached over and shook his hand. 
there is always a problem with the concept of God. Too big for definition, but then not human enough. I don't think Paul Tillich's death, depth and ground of our being quite cuts it. Must be really tough to be a minister of a church or indeed the leader of a small band of Jewish adherents to raise questions about the nature of God. Yet that is exactly part of the calling. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Loving God, we thank you that despite the impression we sometimes have that the world seems out of control, you are omniscient and omnipresent, and you hear our collective prayers. Lord, we begin by praying for our church here in Bloomsbury. We pray for the church meeting next Sunday, trusting in a unity of spirit, a respect for the resources we have, and a desire to sense your purposes for us in this new year. We pray for those who are mourning and those who are anxious about their health or the health of a loved one. Lord, we pray for our country. We ask that our parliamentarians and those in local government might be motivated by selflessness, integrity, openness and honesty. We think of the unaccompanied and vulnerable refugee children and young people who have come into our country and pray that they will be cared for responsibly by our government and services as they stand in loco parentis. We pray for our world. On Friday, we acknowledged Holocaust Memorial Day and trust that we and future generations will never forget the evil and inhumanity that can be perpetrated when we do not acknowledge that each individual is made in the image of God. We pray for an end to the war in Ukraine and an end to conflicts in Israel and Palestine and in so many other parts of the world. Lord, we acknowledge our powerlessness, but we are reassured by the verse in Ephesians which states, Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. <laughs>